From the State Capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capitol Report. A universal school voucher plan for Florida is becoming a flashpoint of controversy. There's not enough accountability for these schools and we need to have benchmarks in place to ensure our students are receiving the quality education that is promised to them. Also this week, more changes to Florida voting laws may be on the way. That's something at least one local elections official thinks is not a good idea. This added complexity in the vote by mail process is a bad idea to introduce into the election, especially for the first time in a presidential election year. We'll also delve into a Northwest Florida corruption probe and a proposed law that supporters say would rein in the unfair practices of the big pharmacy benefit management companies. I'm Tom Flanagan, and this is Capitol Report. Florida House Speaker Paul Renner has unveiled a plan that would pave the way for nearly all Florida families to send their children to private schools or homeschool if they choose. The path for what advocates call universal school choice has been laid out during the past 25 years. Lynn Hatter has more. And I was one of the biggest opponents of that legislation as it was going through the Florida legislature, because I could envision even then where that was going to eventually take us, and and that's where we are today. That's Tallahassee City Commissioner Curtis Richardson. He's a former state representative and an early critic of former Governor Jeb Bush's Opportunity Scholarship Program. That's the forerunner to today's school voucher system. During those early days, the choice movement enjoyed bipartisan support, with many Democrats backing it due to historical racial inequities in traditional public schools. But since then, Florida has introduced charter schools, virtual schools, and greatly expanded private school voucher tuition programs. State lawmakers have lifted income caps and eliminated requirements for prior public school attendance. Within the past two years, the legislature began allowing state money to be used to fund those scholarships. Renner's plan goes even further, getting close to a system that Step Up for Students President Doug Tuthill outlined to WFSU in a 2019 interview. Our hope is eventually to turn all of our scholarship programs into these educational scholarship accounts. The way that works is that money goes into an account for the family. It's well regulated to make sure that the money is spent appropriately, but they have the flexibility just not to spend money on school opportunities, but on after-school programs that more affluent families have access to. Step Up for Students is the state's largest corporate tax scholarship fundraising organization. Under Renner's plan, every student in the state would become eligible for a school voucher. Lake Placid Republican Representative Kaylee Tuck is the House bill sponsor. She notes money can be used for private school tuition or other educational-related expenses. HB1 will empower every parent to be able to choose the customized and tailored education system that fits best for their students. And as a result, we will have students who have the best education possible that fits their unique needs. 
The announcement of the proposal is being praised by many school choice advocates who see it as the last frontier in that movement. Historically, most of the students who've used the state school voucher programs have been Black or Hispanic. And for years, there's been a wait list as the program tends to run out of money due to rising demand. This year, Step Up for Students has a list of about 9,500 families waiting for private school voucher scholarships. In a statement, the self-described conservative Heritage Foundation praised Renner for his plan. But Richardson, the Tallahassee commissioner and former state representative, believes the proposal is primed to take Florida backward. We've gone from, you know, my early days uh, in, in a segregated public school system in my little hometown of Green Cove Springs, Florida, to where we are now. And I see many of the same, many of the many similarities of what was happening back then to where we are now and where we're headed with what's being proposed in the Florida legislature. Richardson points to the decimation of two neighboring school systems, Gadsden and Jefferson. When he started working as a school psychologist in Gadsden County in the 1980s, Richardson says there were about 15,000 kids. Today, Gadsden's school enrollment is less than 5,000. Jefferson has seen a similar decline to a low of about 700 students before its school district was taken over by the state. The state's capital county of Leon is 60 percent white. Its public school district, however, is majority black, and it's one of the most segregated school districts in the state, according to several studies. Current House Minority Leader Fentress Driscoll worries the plan will guide students into low-quality private schools. And that's because private schools, unlike traditional public ones or even charters, are not graded by the state, and they don't have to administer state exams. There's very little oversight of them, and they can more easily expel students for almost any reason. There's not enough accountability for these schools, and we need to have benchmarks in place to ensure our students are receiving the quality education that is promised to them. There does remain at least one major barrier to universal school choice, and that's transportation. See, even if parents wanted to take advantage of the program, they may not have the ability to get their kids to their chosen schools. HB1 does not address the transportation issue, but it's one that continues to be a work in progress and is definitely on the minds of choice advocates. The House's plan is moving quickly. Republicans have supermajorities in both chambers of the legislature and they control the governor's office. Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo has already said she supports the bill, and there may be little opponents can do to defeat it. I'm Lan Hatter. The annual legislative session starts in just a few weeks, and one thing's for sure, state lawmakers want to make even more changes to Florida voting laws. Steve Busquet reports on some of what will be debated at the Capitol. Florida election supervisors want to delay a major change approved last year but timed for this year. It would require all voters to list their driver license number or last four digits of their social security number when they return their mail ballot. Without that number, their vote won't count. Supervisors say it's too costly and complicated to implement now in time for a statewide presidential primary in early 2024. Their spokesman is Leon County Supervisor of Elections, Mark Early. It's worth pointing out that the voter already has support to provide these numbers. 
they do it when they request a vote by mail ballot. And as we detail in our report, there are many concrete reasons why this added complexity in the vote by mail process is a bad idea to introduce into the election, especially for the first time in a presidential election year. By law, driver license and social security numbers of citizens are confidential. Early says keeping them private on a mail ballot envelope poses logistical challenges. A soon-to-be-released report to the state by supervisors strongly recommends the change be postponed until after the 2024 elections. On another voting issue, the state's top elections official, Secretary of State Cord Byrd, told a House subcommittee that his agency is scouring the voter rolls in search of possible non-citizens. That was part of Senate Bill 524, which Governor Ron DeSantis signed last year. The search is the job of the new Office of Election Crimes and Security, which is also looking for people voting in multiple states, as Byrd told lawmakers. And so we started to take that that unit, the Office of Election Crimes and Security, that division, um, is taking a deep dive into potential election crimes. So, for example, um, we had an individual that we found who was voting in Alaska and in Florida. In every single primary and general election, that person was arrested because that's illegal. That activity is illegal. Byrd, a former state House member, was a controversial choice when DeSantis appointed him last year. But supervisors praise his spirit of collaboration. Byrd wants more money in next year's budget for a public awareness campaign on the importance of voting and to counter the growing problem of misinformation. We want to be that trusted source, so I think having a statewide campaign would be helpful to educate voters on some of the changes in the laws and what uh, their rights and responsibilities are when it comes to voting. The annual 60-day legislative session begins March 7th. I'm Steve Bosquet. Coming up on Capitol Report, we'll bring you the latest on a local government corruption probe in Bay County. Witnesses come forward and then they were able to add charges. Florida's governor aims to rein in the practices of pharmacy benefit management companies. Small independent drugstores are all in favor, saying those companies have just gotten too big and powerful. Something began to change significantly. And this is where it created serious problems for small family-owned pharmacies. And an upcoming event will focus on the genocide now taking place on the other side of the world. People rallying around and trying to attack the Rohingya villages or Muslim villages and Buddhist monk killing young Muslim children. The prosecution has hit a few snags in the public corruption case against former Lynn Haven Mayor Margot Anderson. Multiple federal charges have been dropped or dismissed, leading to questions about the U.S. Attorney's Office that's handling the case. As Valerie Crowder reports, Anderson was originally charged with more than 60 counts, but now she's just facing one. That's very abnormal. It's, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen that in my 37 years of practicing law. That's Tallahassee criminal defense attorney Tim Jansen, who's also a former assistant U.S. attorney. Three times the prosecution has issued a revised indictment against Anderson and Phoenix Construction Services owner James Finch, accusing the pair of bribery. The two have pleaded not guilty. 
Jansen says normally prosecutors bring more charges when they issue a new indictment, not fewer. And that's because they normally arrest somebody and then they have 30 days to indict somebody. And then they may then get witnesses or more evidence to prove more charges. Witnesses come forward and then they're able to add charges. But it's not normal to, to reduce charges, not of that nature. Anderson was first charged in 2020 as part of an investigation into the misuse of Hurricane Michael recovery funds by local government officials. Leading up to Anderson and Finch's trial, charges have been falling off. U.S. District Judge Mark Walker recently dismissed the conspiracy to commit bribery charge against Anderson and Finch after he found that prosecutors failed to connect all parties named in the indictment to a single conspiracy. The defense in the Anderson case has taken issue with who was put in charge of the investigation, former assistant U.S. attorney Stephen Kuntz. Kuntz has a history of prosecutorial misconduct. Prosecutors have a lot of power. Prosecutors can decide which cases to take. Prosecutors can issue subpoenas. Prosecutors can give immunity to people. Jansen says that's why he's surprised that Kuntz was rehired as an assistant U.S. attorney. Court records show Kuntz stepped away from the case several months ago before retiring late last year. I'm Valerie Crowder. This week, Governor Ron DeSantis announced a proposed legislative fix to regulate what he called unchecked pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs for short, that operate in Florida. According to Governor DeSantis, the proposed measure would be designed to increase PBM transparency and accountability in the state. One pharmacist who absolutely goes along with this is Danny Jackson. He owns Stewart's Pharmacy, a small independent drugstore located less than two miles from the capital in Tallahassee. The main reason there are not more independents is because of the PBMs, because they control the financial market in the pharmacy business. You know, they're, they're playing both ends of the game, and, you know, it leaves the independents strapped. Said we have no control over the profit margin, so we're at their mercy. Michael Jackson, no relation to Danny Jackson, agrees. For a quarter of a century, Michael was the executive director of the Florida Pharmacy Association until his retirement late last year. He says before there were PBMs, there were third-party administrators that essentially helped pharmacies and their customers connect to patient insurance companies patient brought their prescription into the pharmacy, the pharmacy filled it, billed the insurance plan through the third-party administrator. The third-party administrator paid the pharmacy on behalf of the health plan. But within the last 15 to 20 years, something began to change significantly. And this is where it created serious problems for small family-owned pharmacies. One of the things that happened, claims Jackson, is that those third-party administrators found themselves sitting atop mountains of patient data, data that could be monetized to the tune of many, many millions of dollars in potential revenue. They began to realize that, wow, we're noticing that there's these two drug products out here that are very similar that are being prescribed for patients, and we're paying for them, 
why not use this information to go to the manufacturers of these drugs and say, well, let's create a rebate program. So if you want your particular drug to be favored or covered, then you pay us a rebate and we'll make sure that when a prescription claim comes through that we'll favor your drug product over another drug product. As a result of those rebate deals with selected drug companies, Jackson says the PBMs began calling the shots on what medications they would and would not process for insurance reimbursement. We have a situation where pharmacies are now having to inform patients that the medication your doctor prescribed for you is covered under your plan, but your copay is going to be higher. Or the drug that was prescribed for you is not covered under your plan. I'm going to have to call your doctor back to see if we can maybe have him or her change your prescription to what is covered under your health plan. Or you can just select pay for it out of pocket. Oh, and one more thing. And then you have situations where within the pharmacy benefit manager marketplace, you have this thing being created called vertical integration. This is when you have the pharmacy, the pharmacy benefit manager, the health insurance plan, all under one roof. That's a situation that another Tallahassee small drugstore owner, Harsh Patel with Care Rx Pharmacy, has been following with a great deal of interest. He describes what he's found about how the PBMs are connected to other corporations with an interest in the healthcare business. CVS Caremark is the biggest one for pretty much Tallahassee, I would say. Second biggest one is the uh, Prime Therapeutics, Prime Therapeutics Florida Blue. They work the same way behind the scene. It's owned by Express Scripts. Express Scripts and Cigna, they're the same company now. And their parent company is New York Life. So it's a, it's a long tail, but if, if you really follow it, you know, that's big corporations own these small little things. And since two of the largest PBMs are under the corporate umbrella of two gigantic national pharmacy chains, the smaller independent drugstores are already operating at a disadvantage. Governor DeSantis's proposal has three main objectives related to PBMs, and if enacted, would, the governor says, number one, protect patients from certain PBM-mandated requirements, two, protect community pharmacies from improper PBM business practices, and three, rein in PBMs from conducting business in an unregulated manner. It's being teed up for consideration during the Florida lawmaking session that begins in early March. And by the way, WFSU Public Media had been in contact with the State Pharmacy Benefit Managers Association, as well as the corporate headquarters of CVS Caremark, so as to include their point of view in this story. After several back-and-forth communications, we've received no further response from those organizations, although the invitation remains for them to give us their take on the matter. Florida has more than one and a half million veterans. About 160,000 of them are women. That's the second most among U.S. states. WMFE's Joe Burns reports many of these women may not be seeking the benefits they've earned. Retired Army Colonel Paula Edwards, who enlisted at 18 and retired at 50, is part of a multi-generational military family. But after retirement, this Orlando grandmother who has numerous medical conditions tied to her service, didn't want to apply with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. It was really just just suck it up. Suck it up, buttercup, and keep going. Another woman veteran had to convince her to pursue disability claims. You know, it's great to get the compensation, but uh, the fact that I can get 
care for all of uh, the different things that are going on in my body. It's just phenomenal. A few years ago, Congress took a hard look at how the VA has met and failed to meet the needs of America's two million women veterans. Out of that came the bipartisan Deborah Sampson Act, which President Trump signed into law shortly before leaving office. It aims to transform VA health care to better serve women veterans, improve care for victims of military sexual trauma, and bolster other services. And now the PACT Act, signed by President Biden last summer, has vastly expanded the medical conditions, including numerous cancers, that automatically qualify veterans for health care and other benefits. That's if they served overseas and may have been exposed to toxic burn pits. In Orlando, retired Army First Sergeant Dahlia Espute Jones says the military is still seen as male-dominated. That's what it was many, many decades ago. But things and times have changed. We're evolving. We've proven that we are equal. And women are a rapidly growing, diverse part of the veteran community. She joined a state-sponsored committee looking into the needs of women veterans. It recommended more homeless shelters for women vets with children, changes to make veteran nursing homes women-friendly, and a state advisory committee that held its first meeting this month. The fact-finding committee's report also focused on outreach, on connecting women to a wide range of benefits. Espute Jones likes to wear an outfit showing her last military rank. She says people think it's for her spouse or grandfather, not her. And they're in disbelief because I'm African-American with dreads and I have long nails. Those are my post-retirement things that I love. You know, I couldn't do it when I was in the military. She meets many women who don't want to acknowledge their veteran status. They would say, oh, I only served three years in the United States Army. And I would make an on-the-spot correction. Thank you so much for your service, sister. Please never say that you only served three years. Always tell everyone that you proudly served in the United States military. The VA says an increasing percentage of women veterans, often younger than their male peers, are connecting with VA health care. In 2015, they were 7.5% of overall patients. The Orlando VA healthcare system says its services include women's health staff at all sites and five surgeons specializing in women's issues. For Colonel Edwards, that matters. It's just night and day with having um, a woman surgeon who's a urogynecologist. She can deal with all of your issues and you don't have to go to Her advice to women veterans, register with the VA, get involved, and take advantage of the help that's available. I'm Joe Burns. Florida's unemployment rate dipped to 2.5% in December as businesses continued to struggle to fill positions. The Florida Department of Economic Opportunity released a report today that showed the December rate down from 2.6% in November and from 3.5% in December of 2021. About 271,000 Floridians qualified as unemployed last month from a workforce of just about 10 and three-quarter million people. Meanwhile, businesses and Florida are advertising for 442,000 positions, but that's down from 455,000 the month before. Governor Ron DeSantis touted a 3.5% increase in Florida's workforce over the past year, topping a national increase of 1.6%.
These things don't happen uh, by themselves. It requires a lot of hard work. Uh, we could have had many different decisions made over the last few years that would have sent us on a much different direction. The national unemployment rate in December was 3.5 percent, and Florida's workforce grew by 361,000 people from December of 2021 to the most recent December. You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this week, with anti-Semitism on the rise, two survivors of genocide will share their experiences in a talk at New College of Florida in Sarasota later this month. WUSF's Carrie Sheridan reports they come from very different eras and parts of the world. Weiwei Nu is in her mid-30s. She's a member of the Rohingya ethnic minority in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. She says growing up as a Muslim in the Buddhist-majority nation, she was always treated as different. I always felt discriminated in school, on the street, or everywhere. People like me who are a little different than typical Burmese, maybe a little brown, or I, I pray differently. And especially if I am a Muslim at that time in Burma, if they knew I were a Rohingya, I would definitely face more discrimination. Her entire family was imprisoned for seven years for her father's activism. And when she was released in 2012, attacks on the Rohingya began to escalate. Myanmar's army and police burned villages, raped women, and killed tens of thousands of people. New says genocide was something she never expected to witness. Something like this is impossible. I couldn't even think about it. It wasn't even in our mind that we would face this level of cruelty, especially in a Buddhist country. In some cases, even Buddhist monks took part in the violence. I've witnessed people calling to kill the Rohingya and people rallying around and trying to attack the Rohingya villages or Muslim villages and Buddhist monks killing young Muslim children. Last year, the U.S. formally acknowledged that the military regime in Myanmar committed genocide and crimes against humanity against the country's minority Rohingya population in 2016 and 2017. It's the eighth genocide worldwide the U.S. has recognized, but the killings, the atrocities, the massive refugee crises haven't ended. New says she wants people in Florida to know. It can happen everywhere. Usually the governments and the people in power use the differences among the people to divide and promote the narrative as in them and promote hate speech against the one particular group that they can target easily. New now lives in Washington, D.C. She says the divisions, the disdain for certain races and cultural groups at the root of so many genocides are visible here in the U.S. There are a lot of us and them narrative. There are a lot of um, singling out groups or people with different backgrounds, including colors and race and etc. And these are very dangerous, dangerous narratives. Weiwei Nu will be speaking at New College on January 25th, along with Louisa Lawrence Israels, who at 80 is one of the youngest remaining survivors of the Holocaust. My story is a tiny little story. It's not really that important, but I want people, as many people as possible, to hear it from somebody who was there. She was born in 1942 in the Netherlands, which was then under German occupation. She spent the first three years of her life hiding in an attic with her Jewish parents and older brother. She says she's concerned about a recent resurgence in hate speech against Jews. We're targeted again. 
And this is just the start. That's how it started in the 1930s. So if we don't speak up and we don't try to fight it in a very peaceful way, then it's going to continue. The discussion at New College is sponsored by the U.S. Holocaust Museum, which documents the stories of Jewish people around the world. Lawrence Israels says it's equally important for people to hear from Weiwei New, the survivor of a modern-day genocide. Weiwei is one of the very few that talks and that survived. So we need to give her a voice, and we need to make sure that people know. And, And hopefully there will be some help in the future. Their conversation will be moderated by the Holocaust Museum's Naomi Kikoler, whose grandparents were survivors of the Holocaust. I'm Carrie Sheridan in Sarasota. Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Valerie Crowder, Gina Jordan, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, and Margie Menzel. Thanks also to Steve Bosquet, Joe Burns, and Carrie Sheridan. Technical assistance for Capitol Report comes from Evan Rossi, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Please join us again next week for more reports from the state capitol. Capitol Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.